Good morning. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to take it up and turn with me to the book of John, the book of John chapter 21. Um, it's about, if you're unfamiliar with your way around the Bible, it's about midway through the Bible. Uh, we'll be in chapter 21. Uh, if you are, are with us and you don't have a Bible, you didn't bring one with you or you don't own one, uh, we'd love for you to be able to take the pew Bible that's in front of you. Uh, you can find this reading on page 881 in that particular Bible. And let me just remind you, if you don't have a Bible uh, at home, then uh, we would love for you to take that Bible, the Bible that just consider it our gift to you. If you don't have a Bible of your own, we'd love for you to have the Word of God so that you can read it and examine it on your own. Let that be our gift to you. So John chapter 21 is where we'll be this morning. Uh, as has been mentioned, we started last week in a series, a new series that we called Live Like It Matters. Live Like It Matters. Uh, because I think... If you're like me, then we want to know that our life matters, that we have significance, that we're a part of something that adds value to people and to the, to, to, to the world, that somehow we've left a mark on the world. And what I suggested last week and will continue to suggest to you is that if you want to live a life that matters now and through eternity, it can only happen in the local church. It can only happen by being involved in the church. It is um, trendy, I suppose. It is common these days for people to say, well, I love Jesus, but not the church. Or to say, well, I'm a spiritual person, but I'm not a religious person, which is the same way of saying the same thing. I, 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 I recognize that there's something outside of myself. I, I know that about my experience and about my life. I just don't really like the whole church thing, that the church has somehow soured people on a relationship with God or pursuing spiritual things. Now, I want you to know that Jesus didn't love religion either. The people that he, if you were to read through the New Testament, the people that he is continually the most critical and difficult on are the religious leaders, the people of the religious establishment, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, as they're called. But Jesus, while he didn't love religion, Jesus loved the church. Jesus loved the church so much that he died for the church. And it is God's chosen vehicle that through his church, the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ will be made known. So therefore, if you want to have a life that matters for God and for Christ and for the kingdom and for now and for eternity, it must be, and I would suggest to you again, through the church. But that begs the question, then what is the church supposed to do? What's, what is the mission of the church, as it were? What's the church to all be about? And that's what I want to wrestle with this morning. What is the primary mission of the church? And, therefore, and then, how can we be about doing it? John chapter 21, I believe, will help us in this. So if you, if you will, read with me. As I, as I read, you follow along. Chapter 21 Chapter 21, uh, beginning in verse 1. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, and, and they said we will go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. 
Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of all the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off. And he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish. For they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire burning, burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many in the net, even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them. And he did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples after he had raised them, as after he had, was raised from the dead. Jesus is here with his disciples. They don't know. And Jesus gives them a command to throw. They're, they're out there fishing. They're, they're out there fishing because Jesus was the one who they'd given their last three years of their, life, of their life to. Then Jesus had died, and they didn't know what was going on. And now they've seen Jesus a couple of different times. And Jesus said, go to Galilee and wait for me there. And so there they were waiting for Jesus. And Peter decided that he was going to do what he knew best. He was a fisherman, and so he decided, I guess I'll go fish. They said, that's a good idea. And they got into a boat. Unfortunately, they didn't have a great fishing night. They went out, spent all night fishing, and they didn't catch anything. And then as they were finishing up, as morning had come, then there was a man on the shore, and he called out to them, hey, throw your nets on the other side. Throw your nets on the other side. And when they did, then they got this big, they, well, 153 fish jumped into their net. That's what we're told. Jesus had said, throw your net on the other side. And then this interesting thing happened. When they threw their nets on the other side and they had this big catch of fish, then John, also as he refers to himself, is the, the disciple that Jesus loved, realized it's the Lord. The, the man who was on the shore is Jesus himself. That's the one. How did, how did John know that? How did, how did he know that it was actually Jesus now on the shore? It wasn't because they got closer. It was because this had happened before. In Luke chapter 5, and you don't have to turn there, but it would be worthy of your examination later, maybe this afternoon. If you go to Luke chapter 5, and what you'll find in Luke chapter 5 was that Jesus was in the middle of his teaching ministry, and Jesus was there, and there was a number of people that were there to hear Jesus teach. And Jesus went out on, and stood into a boat so that he was able to teach the people, all the number of the people that were on the shore. And Jesus is standing in that boat, and it happened to be the boat of Peter, Simon Peter. So he's standing in the boat, and he's teaching the people. And after he finishes teaching the people, he says to Simon, let's go out into the deep water. Let's go out and fish. And, and Peter is great. He says, well, with all due respect, sir, uh, we were out there all night, and we caught nothing. But because you asked me to, I'll, I'll go ahead and push out. And so they, they pushed out. And when they 
When Je- then Jesus told them to drop their nets, and when, when they dropped their nets, then they got this huge catch of fish, so much so that they could haul it, and their nets were breaking because of and they had to call all of these other boats to come in and help them get the fish. And Jesus is standing there in the boat with them, and then Peter realizes that this was an act of God, that who this person is in this boat, and so he bows down and says, I, I, away from me, I'm not worthy to be in your presence. And then Jesus says, in verse 10 and 11, he says, Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats on the shore, left everything, and followed him. Jesus was there, and he was in the boat, and they were catching nothing without him. But with Jesus, they caught all of these fish. Fast forward back to John chapter 21. They're out all night fishing, catching nothing. Jesus says, cast your nets on the other side. And their nets are full. And John says, it's the Lord. It's it's the Lord. And as soon as John puts it, as soon as the penny drops for John that it was actually Jesus, then Peter jumps out of the boat and just starts running. He actually puts clothes on to get into the water to run out to go see this Jesus. And he goes to see Jesus and he runs to the shore. You know, it's interesting because Jesus was saying to Peter, that first encounter in Luke, when he was talking to Peter, and he says, Peter, I, I, I know that you're a trained fisherman, but I have something more significant in mind for your life. I have something more important for your life. I have something more internal in, that I have planned for your life. I don't want you to merely catch fish. I want you to go and transform people's lives. I want to use you to transform people's lives. The difference, and, 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 there, and then, now, G- then Jesus dies, and he's gone. And then he's raised again, and now Jesus comes, and he says to these men, listen, I still want to use you for something far more significant. It has, the, the charter on your life, the plan for your life hasn't changed. My plan for your life to still continue to go out and change the world through you hasn't changed. Actually, though you didn't recognize me, and though I wasn't in the boat with you, and though I wasn't physically in the boat with you, I will always be with you because I have a plan to use you. I want you to live a life that matters. And now, even more than before, you have a reason to believe. Because I died and took care of sin, and because I'm alive, now you have all the more reason to go out and fish for men, for people, for lice. That's what Jesus is saying. I have a plan. I have a plan. And I will be with you. And I will help you. But you have a responsibility. But you're not going at it alone. Or in the, in, the, in the book of Matthew, if you were with us earlier, I read this, this very passage in the book of Matthew, chapter 28. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. He says, he says look, all, all authority has been given to me. Now I'm sending you. I have a plan for you and I have a purpose for your life and it's a life that matters now and matters on into eternity. I want you to go into all of the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. That's the role of the church. It's to go out and to make disciples. It's to go out and to fish for people's, to, to fish for humanity, for, for men and women. And he says, and surely I am with you always. You have a role, but you're not alone. Even though I'm not in the boat with you, I am with you, and I will give you what you need to go fulfill the mission for which I've called you to go do. That's what he's saying. So what does it actually mean for us to be fishers of people? Because it's a weird thing to say, and I know Minnesotans love fishing, and that's good, um, but it's weird to think of people and to go fish for people as if somehow you just throw a, a worm on a, on a hook and, and some, it's weird, a little. Maybe it's not for you, it's a little weird for me to think about. What does it actually mean to fish for people? I was helped by, um, by the thinking of Tim Keller on this particular part because what he said is that fishing is actually, it's not merely evangelism because we often think about what it means to go fishing for people is to go find people that have never heard about Jesus and go tell them about Jesus, which is true. And that's necessary and it's important. But it's not merely that. Fishing, he says, is taking people from one realm to another. That's fishing. You're taking them from one realm. When you, the, the, the fish are in a particular realm, and when you've caught them, then you're moving into a different realm. And that's the point. He's saying we're moving them from a different realm. And he goes on to talk about how people in the first century viewed um, symbols. They were much more, into, they're much more symbolic in their understanding of things. In the first century, people understood the sea, right? And when they thought about the sea, this, we often think of the beach and the ocean as just like, oh, this is so great. That's not what they thought of the sea. The sea was dark. The sea was chaotic. The sea was difficult. The sea was, was a symbol of death to them. It was scary, the sea. So the people, he's, this, is what this is the sim, symbolism that they, they had. And so the idea, so in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, says this, For this reason he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It is from the sea, that you, that, that, from the darkness, from the dominion of darkness, the realm of darkness, that, that, that we all live, we all start. And he says, no, to move people, to fish for men, is to move them from the dominion of darkness into the dominion of light. To move them out of that kingdom into God's kingdom. A kingdom of light, a kingdom of joy, a kingdom of hope. Not built on oppression or of darkness or of chaos, but into God's kingdom of structure and of joy and of hope. And that is what we are to do. We are to go out and to move people from one realm to the other. From one place to the other. It's not like dragging them down and beating them down. No, no, no. That's not, what that's not fishing for men. It's helping people understand. Which means that we as the church need to be a community that lives under the reign of the king. 
that we need to be a community that is built on love and joy and hope and justice because God is our king, because he reigns. Jesus says, I want the church to be a community of the king. I want you to bring people from the realm with, where they are sitting on the thrones of their life into the realm where I am on the throne of their life. And when God is on the throne, God is on the throne of our lives, which is, means that we love him, that we serve him, that we give our lives to him, because that's what we were made to do. That when the people who were made to submit and to worship God are actually living lives consistent with what they were made to do, the result is joy. You and I, when we submit to God, because we were designed to submit to God, and when we live in right relationship with God, then the result in our lives and our community is joy. And we are to build a community. We are to be to, on earth, the realm of joy and hope. That is, we are to be a community that's built on love and justice because we serve God rather than oppression, rather than power, rather than injustice, which is the other realm. That is the realm that all of our friends and neighbors live under. And that's, what, that's the normal experience. But there can be in the church a different type of community. There must be in the church a different type of community. And if you and I don't live up to that type of community, then we're, we're just transferring from one realm of oppression to another realm of oppression. Just, but you just show up together on Sundays and sing silly songs. Or are we going to allow the gospel of Jesus of Christ to so transform our community that our friends and neighbors, when they come, they say, I don't know if I believe what you believe, but I, there's something different that happens when the people of God are together. There's something different about the way that they view money. There's something different in the way that they view sex. There's something different in the way in which they give. Though they know I don't believe and live the life that they think I should live, they still treat with dignity and respect. And I don't get that other places. Because they live in the realm of darkness, of oppression, rather than the realm of light and hope. It is for us to move out into the realm of darkness and to show our friends and neighbors that there is a community that is built on love and justice and mercy and grace. And it's called the church. That's us. That's us. Well, and if you want to, Live a life of significance now and for eternity. It is through moving the mission of the church, which is to go out to our friends and neighbors and to create the community that Christ calls us to be with one another. So how do we do it? Okay, it's one thing to say, well, that's a great thing. Oh, I, I, okay, I got it, Pastor. So how do we do it? Well, I think this passage gives us three things that we can look, look at to help us. This isn't all of it. This is just things that I want to help us take steps towards um, becoming the type of community that God calls us to be. The first is this. How can we do it? First is to come to the table. Verse 12. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dare asked, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took bread, and gave it to them. And did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he, had raised, he was raised from the dead. Jesus made them breakfast. And Jesus said, come to my table. 
Come and have a meal with me. Come. Because friendship and relationships happen over food. I don't know why it is, but it's true. You can't be like, hey, it's always like, hey, let's go have a coffee. Hey, let's go have lunch. Let's let's catch breakfast. Because relationships happen over food. Jesus brings his disciples who had been out fishing all night long. They'd caught nothing, and they come off of their little fishing excursion, and he has already a meal prepared for them, and he says, come, come around my table, because it is at the table that we celebrate, isn't it? Isn't that, isn't that what happens? We, we celebrate. What, what happens when you celebrate a wedding? You have a reception. You have a party. You have a dinner. It's, it's, a, it's a place of celebration. We celebrate anniversaries. We celebrate birthdays. What do you do when you celebrate someone? There's going to be food and probably cake. It's what we do. We celebrate good report cards by going out to McDonald's. We, we celebrate. That's not great. I know. But come on. It's, it's around some sort of table. We're trying. We're Americans. We celebrate winning the game by going, and going to Applebee's, right? We celebrate around a table. It's also at the table that we mourn. With the loss of a loved one, or the loss of a dream, we gather around the table and we mourn together around the table. It's at the table that we have conversation with one another and we consider, we learn, don't we, around our family table or lack of family table, what we can hide and what we can share, or what we should share, what we shouldn't share, or how great I am not, or that I chew too loud. It's around the table. That we learn, that relationship happens. I found an interesting quote this week by a writer named Jeff Chu, and he says this, if it is true that the things of this earth, that in the things of this earth we see a glimpse of the next earth, if it's true that as Christians we are called to work towards the model and manifestation of the new heavens and the new earth, what will, the new family, what will the new family table look like? What does it mean to sit and eat and drink together? What kind of table has God prepared for us? What does God prepare? What, how does God prepare us for it? Meal after meal and day after day. There will be, he says, he's, what he's referring to, he says, there will be a table where all of God's people will gather around one day after he returns in the new heavens and the new earth. And now when we gather around our tables, we are to be a glimpse of what that table will one day look like. If that table is all of God's people, all reunited around the head who is Christ, of all nations, of all people, of all tongue, of all tribe, of all language, that come and gather together around the table of the Lord, that will happen one day. If that is true, and now what we do now is to be a glimpse of that day, what should our table look like? What should our table be like? Can I ask you? Who do you invite to your table? Who do you invite to your table? And why do you invite those people to your table? Who do we as a church allow to come to our table and find that they're accepted around the table? That we invite them into conversation around the table? Or do people come to our table only to know that they have to hide in fear and humiliation until they walk out from our presence? 
Who do we allow at our table? Jesus says to Peter, and a little bit, we'll get to it, but he says to Peter, feed my lambs. He didn't say feed your lambs. He said feed my lambs. I am bringing people into your life. I, and they're mine. And I'm bringing them to you so that you can feed them so that they can be around your table. God is bringing people into our, your life and into our community. And he, you say, well, they don't think like I think. They don't act like I act. They don't believe what I believe. Fine, great, invite them to the table. Invite them to the table. Do they have a chair? Do they have a place for us in our tables, in our homes, in our tables, in our church? Do we engage those who are different than us, the people who scare us, the people who offend us, and do we engage them in conversation? I learned this week that the Latin root for conversation means to keep company with. Who do you keep company with? Who are you allowing to come and to keep company with? And are you, if you want to be on mission with the church, to be fishers of people, to bring them from one realm to another, then it can't be all of us just who are already in our own realm, hanging out and eating together. We must invite those who don't look like us, who don't think like us, who don't, think, don't, don't feel what we feel, to come in and to be around our table. If we want to live lives of significance, if we want to live lives that matter now and on into eternity, then let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Who can you invite around your table to help advance the cause of Jesus Christ? To show love and mercy and justice and grace. Because every single meal is a new opportunity for us to live on mission. Every breakfast, every lunch, every dinner. Who are you spending it with? Who are you prioritizing your time around to think out how you can live out the gospel around your table, around your table? If we want to live lives that matter, we must come to the table and bring all of ourselves to the table and re-examine all that we are in the light of all that God has done for us. Second is this. Second is this. We must embrace failure. We must embrace failure. Verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to them, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus had said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. Have you ever had a big fight with somebody? You know, like a big, one of those big mother of all blowout kind of fights. Have you ever had one of those and then realized that you have to see that person again? And you kind of go, oh, this might get awkward. <laughs> this, ha. Ah. I wonder with Peter, 
I wonder what a story was going on in Peter's life, in his heart, and in his mind. Because he, the last words he said that, that he knew, Jesus knew, was that he called down curses on himself saying that he denied Christ. And Jesus, and then the rooster crows, and then Jesus' eyes meets Peter's eyes, and Peter weep, he, he weeps bitterly. You, you wonder what, it, what's, what, what is the story that he's replaying in his heart and in his head and after that? Because Jesus is dead. And the last thing that he said about Jesus was, I don't even know the man. The last words. We understand what it is to be able to say, well, I know the last words that I was able to say to my loved one was this. We remember those things. So did Peter. And I wonder what that story was like. But now when this story happens, then he'd, he'd seen Jesus at least a couple of other times. And I wonder if it was awkward, not because of Jesus, but because how do you, how do you, how do you, go, how do you go move past this? Where do we go from here? After breakfast, after they'd finished eating breakfast around the table or the, the, the makeshift meal, Jesus says to Peter, do you love me more than these? What does he mean by these? He means these disciples. Because it was around the, the other meal, it was around the other table at the Last Supper when, when Jesus said to his disciples, all of you will turn on me, all of you will deny me. And Peter says, if not me, if all of these do, I never will. If all of these run, because I won't, Jesus, because I'm better than them. I'm more committed than them. I love you more. I'm in more. And now it is around this meal, after this meal, with the company of these same men, he says, Peter, do you love me more than these? And he says, Lord, you know that I, you know that I love you. You know that I love you. Peter was at that last supper table, smug, arrogant, with an air of judgmentalism. I won't deny you, even if all of these other will, even if I have to die. And now he's around the breakfast table, humbled as a failure. Bob Goff says this, failure isn't part of life, it's much of life. The rest is just learning how to grow from it. Failure isn't part of life, it's much of life. You will fail. You have failed. And I know we say, well, failure is unacceptable. I know, but it happens. It has happened, it will happen, and it does happen. The question is not, will you fail? We fail, and we fail a lot. I have stories upon stories of my failure. Some of them big, some of them small. Like at the gym, when I was leaving the gym and going up the stairs, and I tripped on my own feet, and I fell right there on the stairs. And you go, oh, and it just, I started re-sweating because I'm humiliated, you know, it's, it's a bad deal. You know, we, we dress down in church these days, not all the suits and ties that we once had around church, but we're still all buttoned up, I'm afraid. When it comes to admitting our failures, when it comes to... Can we really, can we really be okay with failure? Can you be okay with your failure and with the failures of others? 
or will we sit in smug judgment on one another? If we want to be a community that is going to be a different realm, listen, judgment and judgmentalism happens everywhere in the realm of darkness. It has no place in the realm of light, and we have to be okay. We have to learn to be okay with one another's failures if we're going to be this type of community. We want to be those who extend mercy and grace with one another in the midst of our failures. In her book, The Rise, Sarah Lewis writes, The word failure is imperfect. Once we begin to transform it, it ceases to be that any longer. The term is always slipping off the edges of our vision, not simply because it's hard to say without wincing, but because once we're ready to talk about it, we often call the event something else, a learning experience, a trial, a reinvention, no longer the static concept of failure. Failure can become nourishment if we are willing to get curious, show up vulnerable and human. Are we willing to get curious, to show up vulnerable and human? Jesus says, Peter, you failed me. He says, I know. Jesus says, Peter, you failed me. He says, I know. Jesus says, Peter, you, you failed me. He says, I, I know. You, you know that I know. Jesus says, you failed. And now I'm ready to use you. And now I've got something significant for you. Now I've got a plan for you. Because it's not an absence of failure that qualifies him to be leader. It's actually through the failure, through the failure, admitting the failure, and growing from the failure. Now, he says, now I'm ready to use you. Now I'm ready to take you on. Now we're ready to take on the world. Now we're ready to have a life that really matters. It's not by living in your failure, but it's working through the failure with a community of people who actually extend mercy and grace that then we can go on for significance and value in our world. Then we can be able to move the mission of the church forward. But I wonder, can I fail with you? without judgment, without pity, can your pastor fail you and and receive mercy and grace? Can you fail here with one another in your small group? Can we be brave enough to say that I failed? Can we be brave enough to extend mercy and grace with one another, that this would be a community that is actually built on a foundation of love and care for one another. Can we fail when our faith is weak? Can we fail with one another when our theology is sideways, when our hurt and our pain is so thick that another day forward we can't see it and we know Jesus is alive but I can't feel it. Can you handle that with one another? Can you? Can we fail together? If we want, I suggest to you, if we want to be the type of community where people leave the realm of darkness into the realm of life that 
then we must. We must learn. We must take a step. We must be brave. We must examine this together. So we need to come to the table. We need to embrace failure. And finally this, we need to focus, focus on your story. Verse 19. Jesus said all this to indicate the kind of death with which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. And Peter turned and he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following him. And this was the one... This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is it to you? You must follow me. Jesus said to Peter, he's telling Peter the type of death that he is going to die. He's going to be crucified. Peter ends up being crucified upside down because he didn't want to be crucified the same way Jesus was crucified. He's going to, he's, Jesus is saying he's going to be crucified and he says, I want you to follow me. And Peter, like you and me would do, says, hey, what about that guy? Like he doesn't, does he have, I mean, come on. I mean, really? What about that? What? Jesus says, don't worry about him. I've got plans for him. I've got another story for him. I've got a story for you. You worry about your story. You find your story. You focus on your story, what I'm doing. N.T. Wright says this. He says, come to Jesus by whatever route you can with the best gifts that you can find. Come to Jesus by any route. Come to him, but, but come to him. Follow him with whatever you have, whatever gifts you have, whatever you bring along the journey. Jesus says, look, this is the journey that I'm taking you on. Come, follow me. None of us comes to the journey put together. None of us comes into this journey whole. All of us are broken. All of us have rough edges. All of us lack courage. All of us lack mercy and grace and self-control. All of us think more highly of ourselves than we ought, every single one of us. And God is working in you specifically for you because he loves you, because he made you, because he has a purpose for you to, so that you can be a part of this amazing community and advance the mission of the kingdom of God. But it's your story that he's building. And it's your story of following Jesus so that he can use the meager gifts that we bring in order to advance the kingdom. If we want to live lives that matter, it will be following Jesus and allowing him to write our story and we just go on the journey with him and watch him use us and not judge other people's journeys and not live in envy of other people's journey. Saying, God, but what about to quit looking at the, at the grass that's greener somewhere else? And focus on Christ and focus on your story that he's writing through you. One story and then I'm finished. One quote and I'm finished. It was, I found this on Instagram and she's a writer. Um, and she put this on Instagram and I just want to share it with you. It's her journey that she is on. And it's real and it's tender and it's... Thank you God for being present in the kindness of Zoloft. This is what my spiritual director prayed for me at the beginning of our session yesterday. I'm back on antidepressants after several months off. And although I recognize this little blue pill as a gift, sometimes it feels like a bitter one to swallow. Every time I go back on medication, it feels like admitting that I'm not well. 
that I may never be well in the way that I want to be. I forget sometimes that God is present in places I never imagined and that his kindness can look like a hundred million different things, even one small pill. Friends, God is writing your story. Follow him with, and bring whatever gifts you may have as we seek to be fishers of people. Let us pray. Father, we can't do this on our own. We need one another, and we need you by your Spirit to move in us and to use us. Will you help us to be brave? Will you help us to be people of courage with one another and with our friends and neighbors in order that we might be able to see our friends and neighbors who are far from you, transferred from the realm and the dominion of darkness into the realm of light and hope and and grace and mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.